Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's pray together before we jump in. Father, I'm grateful for these moments together with family. I'm grateful, Lord, that you speak to us these true and trustworthy words that are deep consolation and comfort in the midst of sorrows and pain. Thank you, Lord, that you give us in this passage a picture of the fulfillment of all of the deepest longings of our souls. And it's my prayer, Father, that in these moments, you, by your Holy Spirit, would come and press these truths deeply into our hearts. That you would apply these truths in such a way that they would shape the way that we live here and now. Jesus, would you be honored in this time? We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we're starting a new series, Four Weeks on Heaven, and I cannot be more excited to kick us off this morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapters 21 and 22 over the next several weeks. And um, I have, in thinking about this topic of heaven, been reminded by several older and wiser pastors that have said, essentially, be careful, young man, that you don't throw your back out trying to preach on heaven because of all the glory and majesty of it. So I'm going to keep that in mind. And I also, as I have been thinking about this passage and processing uh, it some and thinking about how it applies in my daily life, I've realized how, if I'm honest, it's very infrequent that I let my thoughts drift to the glories of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. Oftentimes a passage like this is only reserved for moments when someone I love dearly has passed away. And I'm going to a passage like this to think about heaven in those moments. But I've been reminded by my little boys, my wife and I have, I have three sons, and they ask the most challenging questions about heaven. I don't know if you've had this experience of talking with a young child about heaven, um, but my oldest case is almost six, and what he wants to know, he'll regularly ask me, he'll say, Dad, you say that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. You say that he tells us that in my father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. And so Kay says, what I want to know is, are all my toys going to be there? Like, what I really want to know is, are there going to be Legos in this room? You say that it's so awesome. I just need to know that, that uh, my toys are going to be there. And what Case is putting words to is, is real frankly what most of us think when we think about heaven. We think, oh yeah, heaven, that's the place where we're going to get everything that we want. And what we're going to see in this passage is actually more truly and actually far better is the reality that heaven's the place where we get to experience God getting everything that he wants. We get to experience that with him. And what we're going to see in this passage, and I hope it will grip your heart and your imagination like it has mine, that we're getting a picture here from John, the beloved apostle of our Lord Jesus, of the new heavens and the new earth, of our world renewed. And what he's going to show us from Revelation 21 is in our renewed world, all of our sorrows, even our deepest sorrows, will be healed. And in our renewed world, all of our longings, even our deepest longings, will be satisfied forever. But all of these blessings, 
are only for the bride of the Lamb. We're going to see all that in this passage. And before we dive in, I just want to show you one quick picture on the screen. This is a famous painting um, entitled The Boyhood of Raleigh. And this is referring to Sir Walter Raleigh, an explorer during the time of Queen Elizabeth I. He discovered much of modern-day North Carolina, hence the name. And he also went in search of the elusive El Dorado multiple times. And so this painting is the artist's attempt to capture what is it that creates an adventurer like that? What is it that creates an explorer like that? And what you see here is the young boy, Raleigh, with one of his friends, and they're listening to an old wizened sailor who's pointing out to the horizon, telling them stories of this is what's out there. It's not a set of blueprints on how to build a ship. It's actually someone who's been there pointing out and saying, look at what is on the horizon. And much in the same way, John is going to show us in Revelation 21, he's going to point to the new heavens and new earth and say, look, look at what's coming. Look at your certain future if you are in Christ, if your faith is in him. Look at what's coming your way and watch your sorrows being healed and your longings being satisfied and cling to him as his bride. Would you persevere and hold on to him in the midst of life in this broken and fallen world. So we're going to dive into this together. I'd invite you to keep that image in your mind. If you would take a look with me at verses 1 through 4. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Let's hold there for just a moment. I want us to see some of the glory and beauty that's sketched out for us in verses 1 through 3. Did you catch in verse 1? He says, New. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He uses that word new twice. And John actually had two options in the original Greek of which word to use. He could have said kainos or he could have said neos. And he chose the word kainos here. And kainos means new in terms of quality. This is something that's qualitatively new. Rather than neos, which is something that's new in terms of time, it's never existed before. And he selects this word kainos because he wants us to see, even as is referenced in the second part of this verse, that it's not that there's never been heaven and earth before. He refers to the first heaven and the first earth, but this heaven and earth are qualitatively new. This is Heaven and earth renewed, restored, redeemed. And the way that this happens is verse 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Do you see that the Christian hope, the biblical hope, is not that we as individual spirits will be swept away into heaven. It's actually that heaven is going to come down to earth at the consummation of all things when Jesus returns. What we see here is this beautiful hope and this beautiful picture of the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. And did you catch the imagery prepared as a bride adorned for her husband? We hear echoes of Ephesians 5, Jesus being the true bridegroom and his church, that is all those who trust in him being his bride. We see in this verse that our God is a lover of humanity. He's a lover of people. 
He's not in love with the structure of the city. He's not in love with the buildings. He's in love with the people. And this city comes down to earth, and our world is transformed. It's renewed. But as you hear it in verse 3, so up until this point, John said, I saw, I saw. But now he says, I heard. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. That word for dwelling place and dwell, it's the word tabernacle. Maybe you've heard it before from this same author, John, in John chapter 1, verse 14. He's referring back to how God used to travel around with the people of Israel, and his dwelling place was the tent. It was the tabernacle in the wilderness. But in John 1, 14, the apostle says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see that this was initiated in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, but it's fulfilled here. This is what God has been working from Genesis to Revelation. His intention has always been to dwell with his people. But we know the story, don't we? That God's intentions are beautifully laid out in Genesis 1 and 2, and then in chapter 3, sin enters the world. And the curse enters the world. And we live and we labor in this broken, fallen world. And we have real sorrows. Things that we have done and things that have been done to us that we need healed. And verse 3 is telling us, and verse 4 will tell us as well, this will happen in God's presence. I want us to see something at the end of verse 3. There's this phrase They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is what scholars refer to as the covenant refrain. This phrase shows up over and over throughout the Old Testament. Every time God moves towards his people, initiating covenant relationship with them, you hear this phrase pop up. Here's my intention, God says. I want you to be my people, and I want to be your God. That is what he has set out to do. He wants covenant relationship with us. And what we see here in verse 4 How do all of these glorious truths impact your life and mine real time in this broken and fallen world? Look at verse 4 with me. This is a glorious promise. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, if I can just tell you something about your heart today, this is what your heart longs for. You may find other ways, like I do, to kind of get a temporary, uh, a temporary fix for the longing in your soul and the sorrow in your soul. You might find ways to medicate, as it were, this longing to heal all of your sorrows, but this is where it's going to happen. It is when God dwells with you and you dwell with him. And it is this touch of your face that you long for. This is the all-powerful, holy creator of the universe who is a tender, loving, gentle father. And he promises you right here. Notice he doesn't say your tears will cease or there's going to be no more tears. He says, hear me, I myself, will wipe away every tear from your eyes. His presence and his 
compassion and his consolation is going to be enough to bring the healing to your soul that you long for. I mean, think about the place in your life right now or the place in your past where you have experienced such deep hurt. You have experienced such pain and sorrow where you think to yourself, I don't know that this will ever be healed. I'm definitely taking this one to my grave. This is not something that is possible to go away. God says in the new heavens and the new earth, I myself will be present with you. I will bring healing to that place of pain. And he says, I will banish forever any threat to your joy and to your peace and to your well-being. What he says here is there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the former things, that is all things pertaining to the curse, have passed away. As I've been thinking about this passage, I've been reminded of a famous Puritan pastor in the 17th century. His name is Richard Baxter. And Richard Baxter wrote a book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest, all about the glories of heaven. And this book, it came out of uh, these years of his life, starting at age 31, he began this practice of meditating for 30 minutes a day, reflecting for 30 minutes a day on the glories of heaven, on God's promises of what's coming his way because of his faith in Jesus. And this came at a time in his life where he was experiencing tremendous pain and bodily ailments. Richard Baxter experienced frequent headaches and nosebleeds and coughing and digestive issues, kidney stones, gallstones, and he thought he was going to die as a young man at age 31. He began this practice, and it turns out he lived for 40-plus more years, and this just characterized most of his life, that he lived with this mindset of holding on to, clinging to God's promises of what is coming his way in Christ, the glories of heaven. And in this book, uh, I just want to read a quick part for you, just to give you a little taste of why I love this so much. In a title, in a chapter entitled, The Heavenly Christian is the Lively Christian, Richard Baxter says this. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God, according to Colossians 3, verse 3. Where must you go for your life except to Christ? And where is he except in heaven? If you lack light and heat, why are you not more in the sunshine? If you would have more of that grace that flows from Christ, why are you not more with Christ? Your strength is in heaven, and your life is in heaven, and every day you must fetch it from there if you are to have it. He goes on to say, the frequent believing views of glory are also the most precious refreshment in all afflictions. They sustain our spirits and soften our sufferings. They keep us from complaining and make us bear our afflictions with patience and joy. They strengthen our resolve not to forsake Christ for fear of trouble. He says a horse will carry us more cheerfully in travel when he is returning home or he expects his rest. What then will a believer not endure when he thinks of the rest to which it tends? Brothers and sisters, can I invite you today to this practice of allowing your heart and mind to focus on the glories of being with your Savior, of he himself wiping away every tear from your eyes. Would you meditate on this promise from God that in the new heavens and the new earth, all sorrow and death and pain will be banished. It will be no more, and you will enjoy sweet communion with him, not in a timeless existence, but in an endless succession of moments. 
the healing of your sorrow that will go on forever. But not only that, not only that, what we have promised to us here in Revelation 21 is that in our renewed world, all of our sorrows will be healed and all of our longings will be satisfied. Look back with me at verse 3 because it's too good to touch on just once. This verse, I think it's near impossible to overstate the importance of verse 3 in the context of the entirety of the scriptures. And it says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. But take a look at verse 5 with me. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Do you hear the grace of God dripping from these verses? Do you hear in these verses, this is what your soul longs for more than anything else, is to be in his presence Verse 3 tells us that everything that God has been doing from, from the beginning of time is going to be fulfilled when you stand before him face to face in this renewed world. And as I've been thinking about this this week and taking inventory of the fact that I don't often think about that, because honestly I'm so bogged down by all of the details of my life in this broken and fallen world that I don't even let myself, like my six-year-old son Case, think about, wait, what's it going to be like? when I'm face to face with him, with the Lord in glory forever. As I've been thinking about that, I came across this week a quote by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain. And he says this, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. I mean, think about in your life and in mine, the the vision of the future that you are straining and striving towards. Because as human beings, we are all hope-shaped creatures. We cannot function without some sort of vision of the future that has hooked us. And if we're really honest, for most of us, myself included, it's oftentimes a vision of worldly comforts and pleasures in this broken and fallen world. That vision of the future is what hooks us rather than this one. But what we see in Revelation 21 verse 3 is the greatest thing about heaven, friends, is that God is there. His presence is what your soul longs for. But I want us to see, it's at this point, I want to invite you to use your imagination with me. Look at verse 5 and think about the Lord saying from his throne, Behold, I am making all things new. I mean, we could spend a lot of time here fleshing that out. But by all things, that includes your body. It includes all of the pain that you experience, maybe that some of you are carrying in here now, will be renewed. It means every emotional or spiritual wound that you carry, it will be healed and restored and renewed. It means that this it means every relationship you have, Think about that for just a second. Every relationship in your life that is strained, that is a source of pain, will be made new. How then should that impact the way that you pursue that reconciliation now? If that is the certain reality that Jesus will make all things new. Or how about this? You've never laid eyes on anything in this earth as beautiful and glorious as it is that testifies to the Creator's power. You've never laid eyes on anything that's not under the curse 
as Romans 8 says, the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. That same word, kainos, renewed, redeemed, restored. But then we also see this. It's at this point where, if we're honest, our hearts are like, I don't even know if I can receive that. Like, I'm a little bit cynical. I can't imagine our world renewed, Lord. I don't know what you mean here. And what he says is, hey, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord anticipates our objections. He knows that we find this hard to believe. And he says, I am the one who has the authority to tell you what is to come. And look at verse 6. How do we know we can trust him? He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. I love this. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 46.10. The Lord says, I am the one who declares the end from the beginning. Alpha and omega being the first and the last letter of the, of the Greek alphabet. And, and the Lord God says, I am the one who declares the end. This is the end of the road for all of us. This is where all of eternity is heading to this culmination, this consummation. And I'm telling you, you can trust my words. I'm going to make it new. Whatever in your life right now feels like this is so broken, this is so painful, this longing that I have will never be satisfied, what the Lord says is, look at me. Would you open your heart to me? Would you allow me to satisfy your soul in ways that you could never imagine? And the best moments in this life, the moments in this life where you have thought to yourself, man, I wish this moment could go on forever. That's just a glimpse. That's a taste of what it's going to be like. I don't know about you, I can't read this reference here of to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In addition to the other references that we're going to read in the coming weeks of the river of the water of life flowing bright as crystal, I can't read that without imagining certain places I've been and wondering what is it going to be like there. And I want to show you a picture. This is kind of my journey this past week, my thought experiment um, of a little slice of heaven on earth for me and my family. This is in southwest Missouri. Uh, two of my boys here are with their cousins, and this river runs right by their cousin's house, and they're just like living the dream. There's countless rocks. They can throw as many rocks as they want into the river. There's crawdads everywhere for them to catch. They can go fishing. And this next picture I'll show you, they're going with their Uncle Cory on an adventure just going to explore the river. There's critters everywhere. It's like this refreshing, cool water on a hot summer day. And they could just do this for hours. And then you even have my boys. Typically, there's, these are my older two uh, when they were a little bit younger. And this is Case and Declan. And usually there's a good amount of interpersonal conflict going on at any given moment between these two. But right here, it's just a moment of like shalom, peace, and harmony, their relationship reconciled by this cool, refreshing water. And I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what moment it is for you where you've been on a trip to someplace beautiful, or you've been sitting around a table with friends and family and people you love, enjoying laughter, enjoying good food. Uh, Like, I don't know what that moment is where you've said to yourself, if this could just go on forever, like, I would just love this. This is one of those moments for me, which I just showed you. And I I want you to use your imagination today and hear the Lord God saying, I can satisfy your soul like no one and nothing else can. I can heal your soul like no one or nothing else can. And I can give you joy in ways that you long to experience. Would you open your heart to me? That's the invitation.
All I'm saying is this, the creator who made New Zealand and Maui knows how to make this awesome. Just throwing that out there. Like the new heavens and the new earth is going to be glorious, like greater than you can imagine. And so I want us to see from this passage that all of our sorrows will be healed. All of our longings will be satisfied in our renewed world. But we need to hear this, friends. We can't finish this passage without hearing this merciful and yet sobering warning in verses 7 through 8. All of these blessings, everything that we all long for, all of these blessings are only for the bride, only for the bride of the Lamb. As you hear it in verses 7 through 8, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I mean, we hear, we hear this warning in verse 8, and it sounds so discordant in our ears after the glories of verses 1 through 7. We hear this warning in verse 8, and we think to ourselves, what do we even do with this? And if we're willing to be honest... Every one of us in this room finds our hearts on this list. We hear a verse like this and we recognize the cowardly, like every one of us, when faced with a certain social pressure, have denied even knowing the Lord or denied that we belong to him or have failed to testify to his goodness. I know I have. But not only that, not only cowardly, he says the faithless. We have all been faithless in our actions, in our thoughts, in our words. We have done what is detestable in the Lord's sight. Murder is sexually immoral. You might think to yourself, oh, I can't claim that to the fullest extent. And yet, as the Lord teaches us in Matthew 5 through 7, the anger and lust in our hearts makes us guilty of this as well. We have participated in the domain of darkness. We have worshiped and served other things rather than the Lord. We have all been dishonest and treacherous in the words of our mouth. I don't know about you, but I read this verse and think to myself, Jesus, I need you. Like, I am in need of your mercy, your forgiveness, your grace. And friends, I bring good news to you today, even as you reach a point like this in this passage. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. This, this revelation starts off this way. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And we should come to a, po a point like this in this passage, and it should wake us up. It also should bring tears to our eyes, and we need to recognize that there are people in our life who do not know Jesus, who do not belong to him. The question for all of our hearts is, do you belong to Jesus? Because his bride is all those who have placed their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins. And if we're trusting in anyone or anything else, we are left apart from his grace, apart from union with him, and we will have to stand on our own two feet before the judge of all the earth. But hear this good news from verse 7. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who endures by faith will have this heritage this is your inheritance, brothers and sisters, by faith in Jesus. He says, I will be his God and he will be my son. Do you hear the echoes of God's covenant with David? He says, David, I am going to build you a house. 
And from your line will come a king who will reign forever. He will be my son. I will be his father. And this is pointing to Jesus who came as the man of sorrows. He came and took all of our sin upon himself. Jesus is nowhere on that list of vices in verse 8. He was always and perfectly obedient to his father, and he had the perfect record before God of obedience, and yet he died on the cross, taking the sins of the world upon him, that whoever trusts in him could be dressed in a white robe, washed white as snow, could belong to him forever as his bride in the new heavens and the new earth, or shifting the metaphor, could be adopted into the family of God as his son or daughter. This is your inheritance if you belong to him. So let me ask you today, for my friends in the room who have not trusted in Jesus, what's holding you back from clinging to him by faith? Like maybe today is the day that you would say, Lord, I need you to forgive me for what I have done. And I need you, I long for you to wipe away every tear from my eyes. I long for you to satisfy my soul with the joy of your presence. That's exactly what David said in Psalm 16. He said, Lord, in your presence... There is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, as I've been thinking about this passage, I was reminded of a couple months ago, I got to spend some time with a church planner, along with some friends of mine from Seven Mile Road, Jordan and Katie Goody. We got to spend some time with a church planner in Dayton, Ohio, Pastor Mateo. And Pastor Mateo was telling me he, he served 10 years in prison, and it was during the last two years of prison that he came to faith in Jesus. He trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. He said he spent the last two years of his sentence reading his Bible and praying. He was in his own seminary, just him and the Lord, and uh, preparing to plant a church. And um, in this meeting, Pastor Mateo was asked, hey, what's your vision for church planting? He said, church planting, my vision? Hey, we're going to the streets of Dayton, and we're going to give them heaven. We're going to the streets of Dayton, and we're going to give them heaven. And brothers and sisters, can I exhort every one of you in the room, when you hear a word like this from Revelation 21, when you see on the horizon the healing and the joy that is coming for all those who place their faith in Jesus, that should send you out of here saying, I'm going to my street, I'm going to my family, to my group of friends, to my workplace, to my city, and we're going to give them heaven. We're going to invite them into relationship with the triune God by faith in Jesus. We're going to show them what this love looks like and and exhort them to trust in Jesus Christ who alone can forgive them and can satisfy their soul. May that be true of us. May that be true of us as a family. May we go out into this city and give them heaven. Amen. Let me pray for us. And so Jesus, we worship you and adore you. We say thank you that you, the King of Kings, left the glory of your throne to come and rescue us. That you came into the world to save sinners like us, and now what marks our story, our inheritance, is that we are children of God. We're children of your Father, all because of your work, Lord Jesus. We say thank you. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would press these truths into all of our hearts today that we would ask ourselves the question, do we belong to Jesus? And how is our union with him? Jesus, we love you. We adore you. We thank you for your grace in our lives. And we long for the day that we're reunited with you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.